Although the characters we discuss are fictional, the challenges people face every day are not. The information we provide in this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you are struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help. Thanks for listening and welcome to the Jedi Council Podcast, where we explore mental health in your favorite fictional characters. Welcome to the next episode of the Jedi Council Podcast. This is your graduate student co-host, Brandon Saxton. And Katie Gordon. How are you doing today, Katie? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing really good, and I'm actually really excited because we're in another one of these periods where we've got a lot of really cool and interesting guests on the show, and that's another uh, another one today. We've got Dr. Ben Pallas with us today, and uh, we're going to be talking mostly today about kind of Blade Runner and do Android Stream of Electric Sheep, kind of a combination of the two, and digging into some of the uh, the really interesting themes in there, which was actually your idea. But why don't you introduce yourself, Dr. Ballas? Sure. Uh, hi, folks. My name is Ben Ballas. I'm an associate professor in the psychology department at North Dakota State University. And thank you both for having me on. I'm super oh, excited yeah. to be here. We're happy to have you. Why don't you tell us really quickly about your research area? Yeah, sure. Um, so my lab studies visual recognition. So we are mostly interested in how you look around the world and recognize Real things, real things like the people around you, um, looking at faces and understanding what emotion they're feeling, whether people you're looking at are old versus young, um, people you know versus strangers. And so we think about a lot of these issues regarding visual information and how you learn to be as good a recognizer as you are. Well, and how did you get into that? I'm always interested in hearing a little bit about kind of the pathway to getting to that area. Oh, that's really kind of a fun question. Um, so I thought I was going to be uh, a physicist okay. when I was an undergraduate. So I, I thought, you know, physics, math, that's where it's at. And then I realized I kind of hated both of those things once <laughs> I actually started doing them. Um, and I uh, took a vision class kind of on a, on a whim. Um, I was kind of floating around between majors trying to decide what to do. And I ended up taking a sensation and perception class and just thought this this was so great. You know, the data for these experiments is just what you see. And it sort of had all the math and physics that I liked, but none of the math and physics that I hated and was bad at. Um, so that, that's really what got me interested in the topic in the first place. Um, but then in terms of really wanting to become a scientist and do work in this area, um, I have to talk about my amazing PhD advisor, Pawan Sinha, uh, who's at MIT. Um, as an undergraduate, I saw him give this amazing talk about caricatures. Uh, so it's worth saying Pawan is himself a really amazing artist and draws these wonderful portraits and likes thinking a lot about what art tells us about vision. And he gave this talk where he was trying to argue that caricatures are really cool because they distort what faces look like so much, but they're still really recognizable. And the idea was that means that artists really know something about the way you recognize faces, about what information is important and what information you can mess with and distort in all these ways and still have a picture that's recognizable. And so he was talking about this study where he was looking at dozens and dozens of caricatures of the same person to try and figure out what stayed the same. And I just thought that is the coolest thing I've ever heard of, right? You know, yeah, yeah. That, that's incredible. It reminds me of um, a Frasier episode <laughs> that actually where his forehead he feels is too big, but everyone <laughs> recognizes that that is him. Right. Despite, so there is something about like other people are perceiving differently than what he is. So yeah. that's interesting. Ben, I have to give you a little bit of credit too, just unrelated to this, but I'm just thinking back now, back when I was in 
one of your classes during graduate school and an emphasis that you put in class on translating science in a really accessible way for the public. And some of the assignments that you had us doing in class was writing blog posts about scientific articles. And in a huge way, I think that's something that inspired this project and, and some other blogging stuff that I've done. So this is my, my public thank you to you oh, hey, for hey, inspiring hey, that. that. Thank you for doing so much cool yeah. work. No, it's, it's so important. And, and so I really appreciate um, that you have that aspect and you think about things like that. Oh, I, I appreciate that. Yeah. I'm glad to think that students like you are going on to continue thinking about this stuff. Yeah, no, it's so important. So... Okay, let's dive in a little bit because you had a, we had a handful of ideas for episodes mm-hmm. uh, to have you on. Because one thing that I also really appreciate about you is not only do you have this really cool science, but you have a lot of really cool geeky and nerdy interests as well. Oh, yeah. So that's something <laughs> I can really relate to. They're, they're in there. And obviously there's a lot of intersection between that and obviously what we're trying to do on the show. So a few things that we talked about. And uh, we talked a little bit about maybe covering like Westworld and maybe like Vision related to like Daredevil or The Predators. So I think we're going to try to get you back for some of those. I'd love to do that. Yeah. For today, we're going to focus really on Blade Runner, which was another actually idea that you brought to the table. And I'm really curious about your history with Blade Runner and Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. Um, just as how did you get into the story and kind of what, what captivates you about that? Sure. Yeah. So um, so Blade Runner is one of my favorite sci-fi movies. Okay. Period. Dot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't actually know when I saw it. First, I guess it came out like 1982 sure. or something. That sounds good. Um, you know, I was two years old at the time, so obviously not so into the Philip K. Dick adaptations sure. just yet. Um, but I'm guessing I saw it for the first time probably in high school. Okay. And then I took a film noir class as an undergrad where we watched it again. Um, and you know, it's um, it's a it's a movie that I think really holds up well next to the book. They're they're, sure. they're different stories in a lot of ways, and when you sort of consume both of those forms of media, you sort of get this really big picture out of both of them. Um, so at some point in college, I had a friend who was really deep into the Philip K. Dick stuff. Um, and, you know, that's a weird rabbit hole to go down sure. if, you, if you choose to go down that rabbit hole. But I did for a while and read all of them. Um, and I actually saved Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep until late. Cause okay. I, was, I was kind of like, oh, I know Blade Runner. I don't need to read this right. one. You know, I'm going to go read Ubik, which no one understands. Um, <laughs> but uh, when, I, when I finally did get around to reading it, I was really impressed by how much other stuff was in the book that they never even touch in the movie, mm-hmm. but that makes a lot of stuff in the movie make sense. Um, so, you know, for folks who are listening who watch the movie, there's all this kind of funny stuff with animals in the movie. Yes. You know, there's this dream sequence where he sees this unicorn. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's sort of animals sprinkled throughout the narrative that they never talk about. And in the book, that's this huge focus. Yeah. And it's this huge way that they talk about the capacity people have for um, experiencing empathy. It's this religious movement as well, where animals kind of form the the basis of how you think about yourself in relation to the natural world. Um, So anyway, this is a long-winded way of saying that I I thought the movie was initially just a really cool kind of cyberpunk thriller. And then reading the the book, I thought, you know, wow, there really is a lot here. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of stuff going on in terms of culture and religion, um, you know, Dick loves blurring these lines between what's real and what's artificial, mm-hmm. which is fascinating to see in both the book and the movie. 
And uh, in my own research, we do work in my lab about how people perceive artificial faces mm -hmm. and how people interact with something like an android compared to how they'd interact with a real person. And so, you know, I guess there's a bit of a chicken and egg problem there for me. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I don't know if Blade Runner made me interested in that right. or, you know, sort of vice versa. But um, they're, they're cool issues to think about. Um, as we get better and better tech that starts to look a little more like the Blade Runner world, yeah. this question of how we really do interact with it becomes really meaningful. Yeah, I think that's great. I actually, so I did not read the book until preparing for this podcast episode, but um, my husband, Keith, who I have to give credit to because he was very helpful in kind of discussing these things too, but he, after reading it and talking to him about Blade Runner, it was really interesting. He had a similar experience where he was like, there are two ends of where there are similar themes, but they kind of express on different ends of it. And it was so, I, it's hard for me to think of any other book and movie that's like that. That's yeah. quite like that anyway, that, you know, yeah, there are differences, but the idea that it's similar enough, but you're emphasizing in different directions. I don't know. I think that's mm -hmm. really cool. Yeah, I should probably disclose, too. I just also read mm -hmm. the book as well, and I'm not all, all the way through it yet, so I'll get you your copy back soon. <laughs> Take your time. Take your time. Uh, and I haven't seen the film yet or any of the seven versions, so I really <laughs> I really need to do that now. But so, several highlights and clips. Yes, I watched, I watched a lot of highlights and, and analyses of the film and the book to make sure I was prepared for today. Um, do you have a favorite of those seven versions? And did you see the new <laughs> reboot? No, not reboot. 2049. Yeah. No, I haven't, I haven't okay. seen that okay. yet. Um, yeah, no, of the, of the seven versions, yeah, it's really number five where they capture it. Okay, sure. <laughs> no, um, so, so I will say, because this is the thing people argue about. Yeah. Um, I am all about the absence of the voiceover. Okay. That's a huge feature for me. Uh, I forget like what else happened in like the third director's cut or sure. whatever. You know, so that that I'm pretty much I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. I, I probably don't care. But the absence of the voice okay. was huge because the original cut is just terrible. It's like a movie for people who weren't really watching the movie. Okay, <laughs> and sure. Harrison Ford comes in and he's like, "So that happened." Okay, <laughs> and, and then this other thing happened next. And then you somehow watch it anyways. Um, so it feels clunky. It's clunky. Another Blade Runner fun fact before we really dig into the interesting stuff that uh, I came across was the graphic novel, which sounds really cool, mm -hmm. but I guess what's interesting about it is they use the full text of the book in the graphic yeah. novel. So that's surprising to me because usually yeah. when you think of graphic novel, it's light on the words, uh, more on the graphic part. So that really surprised me to hear that, yep. but it's really cool. It is. Yeah. It is. I was I was very impressed by their commitment to that. Yeah, that's yeah. amazing to fit, because it's about like 220 or 240 page mm -hmm. book. So to fit that into a graphic novel is incredible. To got me. that yeah. at my yeah. house too, as part of the full Blade Runner. <laughs> wow. Yeah. You guys got the whole collection. suite going we, on. We really do. You've actually. really <laughs> helped to fund the sort of uh, franchise. Yeah. <laughs> it's all Keith. But, sure. You know, but. Well, that sounds great. Well, where should we jump in? Uh, should we jump in maybe starting with some of the assessments that are used in the book and the film? Um, that seems probably as good a place as any to sort of jump off. What does everyone think? Yeah, sure. Or should we talk a bit about kind of why they're doing these assessments yeah. a little bit too? That and... sounds great. Mm -hmm. So um, really the folks who, well, maybe before we see anything, Blade Runner and Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep spoilers from here on I out. I think it's yes. cool now. Is Hopefully it, enough I time has passed. I agree, but sometimes people it's get mad been, about that stuff. I don't know. Twenty-eight plus something like that. You went to MIT. It's been many years. Actually, it's been a while. Yeah. It's been long enough. We'll round up. Okay, that we're not in too soon territory. Okay, that sounds great. Um, so basically, the the way that these assessments are used is kind of twofold. 
So the Blade Runners are kind of this police force that they're in charge of retiring the replicants or androids. They use uh, what they call the Voight-Kampff test to determine whether or not someone is a replicant. And a main premise of that is really revolves around empathy. And it's sort of, if I'm, and please correct me if I'm wrong, it's kind of a questionnaire-based one where there's a number, a uh, sequence or series of questions, and you use those to determine whether or not the person whom you're interviewing is uh, an android or a replicant, which I think those terms are used one in the movie and one in the book. Yeah. Yeah. In the book, it's androids or Andes, and then in the movie, they came up with the term replicant. Right? Yeah. Okay. And then there's also the, um, what is it? It starts with a B. The ben- Benelli. Benelli, yes, Benelli thank you. Test. Yeah, uh, the Benelli uh, reflex arc test. And this is one that in the book is used by the replicant kind of police force on uh, Decker to determine whether or not he's a replicant. And this has more of a psychophysiological sort of assessment. And it, I think it involves... Uh, like pupil dilation, galvanic response, and heart rate sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what that's used. And it's not as clear to me, and, and I'm interested in what other people think, in the movie it's sort of like they're maybe combined, but maybe not. Uh, it's not as clear. So that's kind of what, anyway, that's kind of what it's for. Is they have these assessments that they use to determine whether or not someone is or is not a replicant. Yep. Yeah. Pretty interesting. Um, I don't know. What, what do we have to say about that? So one thing I think is sort of funny about both tests, mm-hmm. um, and this is really more in, more talked about in the book than in the movie. Sure. Um, but yeah, so they're both supposed to be measuring these responses. In the case of the Voight-Kampff associated with empathy, and in the Benelli test, it's supposed to just be this reflex arc, right? Mm-hmm. There's this path through the spinal cord. They're measuring the speed of that path, and that's what gives you the answer. Um, the funny thing about both of these, whether they're talking about empathy or they're talking about this physiological reflex arc thing, um, is the deal is replicants are supposed to be a little too slow. Sure. You know, and they say, like, oh, in the replicants, you know, this reflex arc takes a couple microseconds longer or something like that. Um, And in the Voight-Kampff test, they talk about how the Andes or the replicants, they're just not quite quick enough to kind of express these responses that are consistent with being empathetic. And uh, I feel like to modernize, this all sounds really weird, right? The idea that, like, the problem with the computers is they're too slow. Too slow, right. That's kind of a quaint idea, right? Um, It's sort of funny to think that, like, that was somehow the problem. Yeah. but, you know, you sort of have to put this in the context of when this was all made, I guess, because, um, like I said, the movie's early 80s. Yes. The book is, I assume, like mid-70s or something like yeah. that. Yeah, about right. So, like, that's still an era where computers were not largely seen as mm-hmm. terribly reliable and terribly efficient. They yeah. were these larger machines. They broke in ways that were tougher to understand. So it, looking back, it's funny that Dick wrote his book saying, like, well, yeah, that's the thing about the replicants is they're a little less reliable. Sure. They're a little too slow. And now we'd be like, are you kidding? Like, yeah. Yeah, you, you would build in things to slow <laughs> right. it down. Yeah. Um, but the other thing about them I think is funny is that when you think about the problems that are hard for computers to solve today – there are things that apparently the replicants in Blade Runner solve effortlessly. Yes. Just having a conversation, right? These replicants can sit down across mm-hmm. the table from you and talk and respond appropriately to what you're saying, and they do that perfectly. Mm-hmm. But apparently they can't dilate their pupil fast enough <laughs> yeah. right? when they notice you're talking about an animal being hurt in one of these questions. Um, so that's also kind of funny. There's sort of this... There's a point he's obviously trying to make in the book about sort of empathy being this core aspect of humanity. Mm-hmm. Um but in a way, it sidesteps all these things that are maybe less, I don't know, philosophically appealing, right. but way harder from an artificial intelligence yeah. perspective. Because now as a vision scientist, I watch the movies and I'm like, 
oh my god, they can like walk around <laughs> yeah. and you know they recognize people and don't get hit by cars when yeah. they cross the road. Um, and like these are still the challenges. Um, so that that's something that's kind of interesting to me. Yeah, you know, there I recently read this article by um, Ed Young, journalist, science journalist in the Atlantic, that was talking about a study that someone was doing with um, people who have psychopathy. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that they were doing this, because um, often when you're measuring that, when you're talking about assessment, asking people questions about themselves isn't the greatest indicator Mm -hmm. if you're trying to tell if they have psychopathy. So um, what they actually did was, and I'll link to this in the show notes in case anyone's interested, is they did a kind of test to see if people could get perspectives. And they did like but the perspective taking wasn't like what is the other person thinking. They were things like if you were sitting in that position, what would you see? Kind of like sure, the old sure. uh, theory of mind type. Yeah, yeah. There, at least it's supposed to tap theory of mind. Mm-hmm. And they found that individuals who had high levels of psychopathy using kind of standardized measures like the psychopathy checklist, which looks at past behaviors and other types of things, that they were slower to understand the perspectives of other people so they could still get it, but it was slower and it took more effort. And so it was interesting thinking about that in terms of, from a mental health perspective, the idea that at this processing level that something amiss or awry is what's leading to this other outcome. And so it was kind of interesting reading about that idea. It's kind of fun too, or maybe not fun. It wouldn't be fun for the people experiencing this, but fun just thinking about psychometrics a little bit too. Mm -hmm. And so like maybe people like that who did struggle with empathy or perspective taking, or I think in the book, Ben, you had referenced that individuals who experienced schizophrenia maybe struggled a little bit too. Am I remembering that right? Yeah, that's actually, so it's a plot point in the book where um, the Tyrell Corporation brings out ostensibly, I think it's his daughter or niece or something like this. Um, This is Rachel in the Mm -hmm. movie. And they say, we're not going to tell you what's up with Rachel. Just test her. And it takes him this really long time. And when it's done, he says, she's a replicant. And they say, nope, she has a personality disorder. And they say, she has schizotypy. And they're like, your test is awful because it's going to say that people with schizophrenic symptoms should be killed. That yeah, so pretty severe consequences for false positives, right? For the way comes that, right. yeah. yeah. So that's not ideal for sure. So you'd really want to dig into that. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting thinking about some of those psychometrics that go into that, and then also trying to consider some of like the base rate stuff that can play into some of those too. Because in the book, uh, there are four replicants. I think in the movies, there's five i think so yeah, yeah. Uh, which is sort of besides the point but there's sort of hints that there are more or could be more perhaps out there so it's kind of weird to try to capture and wrap your mind around all of that just from that sort of psychometric kind of perspective it's kind of interesting yeah if it's a very low base rate then yeah. it becomes even more important that the test is really good right. but especially if there are higher rates of this kind of schizotype or whatever it is that interferes mm-hmm. then it's a major concern yeah. too. Um, going tracing back a little bit to pupil dilation. Do you mind mm-hmm. talking a little bit about what um, what is underlying that kind of neurobiologically? What does it mean, and what are they? Trying oh, to get sure. At? I mean, I'm probably not the best person to tell you all about like the neural circuits that actually oh, make you it don't happen. Have that's, that's, specific. <laughs> that's, that's a little bit above my pay grade. Um, but uh, yeah, so you know, in um, in a lot of recognition research, people sometimes do use pupil dilation to characterize how you respond to different kinds of stimuli. Mm-hmm. Um, and one simple thing you can use it for is it's an indicator of arousal. Um, so you can you can actually do some really cool experiments where you show people images they actually don't have an experience of seeing. Uh, there's this really neat paradigm called continuous flash suppression mm-hmm. where you basically show nonsense pictures to, say, your left eye and then meaningful pictures to your right eye. 
And if you make the nonsense pictures sort of noisy and cluttered enough, all they'll see are those noisy things. Uh -huh. They won't have any experience of seeing these faces or scenes that you're showing to the other eye. Oh my gosh. And the neat trick here you can play is you can put these images in that sequence that's going to the right unperceived eye that are maybe frightening images, mm -hmm. right? Or just kind of stressful images in some way. And you'll see measurable pupil dilation, even though your participants are telling you they didn't see anything. They just saw these noisy cluttered things that got shown to the left eye. So it's this neat way to measure mm -hmm. implicit recognition. So, mm -hmm. you know, is the information in your visual system even if you don't have an experience of it? So that's, and that's kind of, um, to maybe oversimplify it, the, like the sensation versus the perception type thing, or not quite? Uh, that's a, that line is a hard one to draw okay. from, you know, because mm -hmm. um, usually, what, at least when I tell my students this in class, mm -hmm. I say sensation is kind of about taking the measurement just making sure you're mm -hmm. getting the data from the world that you want to get. Mm -hmm. And perception is the step that's more about inference. Okay. You know, what does the data mean? And I guess I'd say you must be doing something to say what it means if you know enough right. to say that's a scary image, mm -hmm. right? Um, but it's really that idea of implicit versus explicit processes. Um, you know, there is information that guides your behavior even if you don't have an experience of seeing it. In some cases, so the implicit would be um, basically your pupil size or whatever reacting to the pictures, even though you're only really explicitly seeing the nonsense pictures. Exactly. Okay. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. I mean, maybe a more um, kind of everyday way to think about this is um, so my daughter and I like to go hiking in, in the summers, uh, and we go to this uh, state park relatively near to our house. And one day we're coming back from you know, looking for rocks in the river. And uh, as we came up to the top of the steps away from the river, I just kind of jumped, right? Mm -hmm. Like I sort of saw this flicker out of the corner of my eye, and I kind of jumped to the side and pulled her with me. And, and it turns out there was a snake. Wow. Oh. Right? And now that's, you know, I'm kind of making up something to support my point here a little bit. But, like, <laughs> sure. I, I definitely wouldn't have been able to tell you, oh, there's a snake right there. I just kind of had this feeling that there was something bad on the ground, and I jumped away from it. Yeah. Well before I could tell you that's the problem, that's what the thing is. And I might say that first step is kind of an implicit recognition process that's guiding behavior. My visual system's doing just enough to tell me, like, jump to the right. Right? You don't need to know why, mm -hmm. just get out yeah. of the way. Mm -hmm. And then there's this separate explicit process that says, okay, that's a snake on the ground. Maybe it's this kind of snake. It's this big. You know, so there's kind of different ways you can process yeah. visual information. And one way they can vary is how much access you have to the experience of what you've seen. Oh, that's so interesting. And so it's, it seems like you can use stuff like pupilometry. I, I think that's the I'm term. Right. Pupilometry? Yep. Okay, good. <laughs> I think I had an extra syllable the first time. Um, to to actually see what, basically, they can't they couldn't report seeing, but you can still tell that their body is responding to right. it. Okay, right. that's interesting. And like galvanic skin response, mm -hmm. uh, which we also think is probably part of what the void conf is supposed mm -hmm. to be measuring. This is another one of these kind of implicit responses. You can sometimes see that people's GSR will change even if they maybe don't have that much access to what they've seen. Um, so yeah, there's this whole collection of things you can measure that kind of tell you if the information got there, even if people can't tell you about it. So it's it seems like with galvanic spin, uh, skin response and other types of things like that, which is basically looking at things like sweating and yeah. stuff like that, that um, people have a tried to also measure psychopathy with those. Basically, anytime that there is 
the potential for a disorder or a mental health condition where the person might not be good at reporting it or might be motivated to not report it, then people historically have done things like projective tests. Like, you don't, you know, here's this ink blot, what do you see? And, and can I tell what they have based mm -hmm. on what they see? That That's a whole nother story, but there is some problematic issues there. And of course, the psychophys stuff that's been used to measure emotions, which is helpful in scientific research, but in terms of diagnosing is so... I guess, limited that, right, we can't even use lie detector tests are usually yeah. not admissible in court. So it's interesting because I think from a research perspective, we usually at least try to get multiple measures of mm -hmm. constructs and kind of use those to inform things. But then when we try to apply them like they would be applying it in Blade Runner, yeah. there are all these issues that kind of ethical yeah. issues that can interfere or, you know, how precise is it and things like that. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to see that represented in this decades-old story yeah. that was written. Yeah. It's especially interesting to me thinking about the outcome being so extreme mm -hmm. that they're retiring these individuals based on the response of right. these tests. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's still, I'm stuck, I know I'm kind of belaboring that point, but I'm stuck on that. Another thing that I think is kind of interesting is trying to connect uh, the void comp test to um, real-life sort of assessments. Mm -hmm. So one thing, I don't know that much about it, and I don't know if either of you, you maybe both know more than I do, but like the Turing test, trying yeah, to determine sure. if something is an AI or not. Uh, ben, do you know some about that? And oh, yeah. How, yeah. how does that line up with what we see, or is what is depicted in the book informed by that at all? You know, I'm, I'm sure it is. Sure. Um, I don't, I don't know, I've never read anything where, like, Dick talked about sure. mm -hmm. whether, whether the Voight-Kampf is meant to be a Turing test, but whether he intended it or not, it is. Sure. Right, because um, this, this is the imitation game that right. Alan Turing talked about. Um, so yeah, the, the Turing test, um, and this is something Turing was thinking about, well, even well before World War II, when he did his code-breaking mm -hmm. work, I think most people know him for, um, as he was starting to think about these ideas of what machines could do and couldn't do, he started thinking about this question of whether they'd become sophisticated enough that you'd start to wonder whether they'd become conscious. Um, so that's one thing that should be said, is Turing used this test as a way to try and answer that question. Mm -hmm. Have I made a machine that thinks? And one stance you can take is, look, if something passes this test and you can't tell the human from the computer, you may as well assume it's conscious, right? Because if you can't tell the difference, who are you to say it just can't be conscious right. on principle? Um, so that's how Turing was sort of developing the idea, was as a way of saying, how sophisticated is my thinking machine? Is it fair to say that it's, it's self-aware? Um, so his imitation game is is kind of interesting. Uh, in his original formulation, if I remember right, the deal was you were supposed to be faced with a human and a computer, and I think the deal is you're trying to guess who is male and who is female. It was a gender-based okay. guessing game. And the deal is both sides are trying to trick you. Okay. Right? So if you're there and you're a male human, you're supposed to say these things that maybe muddy the waters a little bit, make it harder for the person to guess. And the idea is the computer is supposed to have sort of the same instructions, right, to give these kind of ambiguous answers that make it hard to tell. Sure. Um, and Turing's thing was, well, this is a difficult task, right? right? For an AI to know, here's how to lie the way a human would lie, yeah. this is tough. Um, but now, I guess, you know, when people think about a Turing test now they think more explicitly about just this, are you a human or are you a computer yeah. test? Mm -hmm. um, and it's there's a really fun history of different challenges mm -hmm. um, in the AI community to try and implement Turing tests. Um, probably the most 
famous one is oh I'm gonna get the name wrong I think it's the Loebner Prize okay um, I think it's L O E B N E R um, and this is a natural language based test where okay. you basically have a conversation with either an AI or a person and you're supposed to work out whether you're talking to someone real oh, okay. or not um, and it's one of these cases where the bar has gone higher and higher and higher in recent years and it's kind of fun to go play with some of these things yeah um there's one online called alice bot that i'm sure you can find if you google around sure was that one on did they do a radio lab episode about alice i wouldn't be surprised okay. yeah. yeah and it's it's pretty good mm. you know like there's ways you can get it into mm. some loops and, and stuff like that that you know mean we're not all the way there yet right but it's way better than things used to be um, so yeah, I think the Voight-Kampf was probably informed by some of these sure. ideas about that's really cool. You know how do you how do you test whether this thing is human-like or not? And also just the idea that if you can't tell the difference, that means kind of that means they have consciousness or something mm-hmm. like where what does it mean to have consciousness? And yeah, well, this is something I always um, make. I forget if I did this when you took the class, Brandon, but I often try to make my neuropsych students mad with this question. Um, I tell them that you know I had this horrible accident when I was a teenager, and I haven't had conscious experiences ever since. And then they all sort of look at me and I say, well, prove me wrong. Sure. Right? And they get really mad. (laughs) They get really mad really fast. Because a lot of these things, it's like, no, I just think you are. Yeah. You're acting like it. Yeah. And you say, well, that's what the Turing test is about. Are you acting like it enough that you believe it? I really, and maybe this is getting sort of besides the point, but I really kind of like the existentialism that goes Mm -hmm. into following this train of thought in this idea of, if we, you know, if an AI can replicate consciousness to the point that we can't detect it, at what point is that just consciousness in and of itself? Right. And I like how this was kind of captured too in the book and the film, and even kind of in the end when is uh, the last replicant is his name Roy? Roy Batty. Yeah. yeah, Roy finally gets to Tyrell Clark, finds Tyrell, says, "I need to, I want to live longer. I, yeah. why shouldn't I live?" And then ultimately that leads to kind of that beautiful speech that he gives at the end too, mm-hmm. uh, talking about how you know he had this incredibly short time to live, and it's not really going to matter. And gosh, it really captures a lot of those themes really well, related mm-hmm. to kind of who is it to decide that the replicants aren't people when they they almost can't be detected except for by these very specific assessments. Yeah, well, I think something that, that Dick might say, too, is either you should give the androids more credit, mm-hmm. or maybe we shouldn't give ourselves as much credit yeah. as we right. do, right? Um, so when you talk about things that got me interested in some of these topics, um, when I took intro psych as an undergrad, we talked about split brain patients. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there are these weird reports of, you know, the left brain feels this way, but the right brain feels differently, yeah. and so the person's having this really difficult day and they're agitated because their hemispheres aren't resolving this Mm -hmm. conflict. Um, And I remember my instructor at the time, you know, he relays all these things and he says, now, you know, every year I have students who say, this all sounds like nonsense, Mm -hmm. right? What do you mean the left brain thinks this, but the right brain thinks this? What about the guy? What does the guy think? And he stops and he says, there is no the guy. Yeah. Right. There's two halves in one skull and possibly that's true for you, too. Mm-hmm. It's just that they talk to each other. And I went home and, like, freaked out yeah. the rest of the day. <laughs> um, but I think that's a real, it's a real question. Oh, yeah. And it's something this, this book and this movie makes you deal with, mm-hmm. is whether or not we're giving ourselves way more credit than we should. 
I love those teaching experiences too, though, because I felt when I read Skinner's Beyond Freedom and Dignity in my history and systems class, I was like, wait a second, are we all just products <laughs> of every environmental conditioning thing? And, and it's really uncomfortable, but I think yeah. that it is yeah. very useful to go through those exercises and think about that. Yeah, for sure. Because it just it also shows just on a functioning day to day basis how many how our conceptualization of things is kind of metaphors. Yeah. helps us to make sense of the world. And when we break out of that, it starts to feel really uncomfortable. Yeah. I'm having an existential crisis now. Oh, no, about my own existence. <laughs> I'm pretty no, sure you're okay. conscious. But it's fine. I... I'm not sure if I'm a replicant now. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to need We're to gonna get the white cop here. Um, another thing that, uh, just thinking about the assessment, it sort of c- captures polygraph tests a little yeah. bit in my mind, just in mm-hmm. some of the sa- same measurements that's taking, you know, related to galvanic skin response, which I think is part of polygraph testing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and heart rate and that sort of stuff. So I kind of like that too, and just thinking, I don't know, I like to think about some of these parallels and, and wonder about what informed what, or maybe not at all, maybe just my own connections that I'm making in my mind, but I think it's really interesting. Um, also, even just the way that we think and talk about empathy, yeah. uh, and, and we measure empathy too. Uh, you know, we have questionnaires that can measure empathy and things like that. So it's it's all really interesting. I think it is an empathy in and of itself because that psychopath study that I was mm-hmm. mentioning earlier, that study looking at psychopathy. You know, what is empathy? In that case, they're kind of de- defining it as literally taking like the imagining the visual perspective of another person. Yeah. Um, it seems like. And at least in this story, it's more of a um, a physical reaction or something mm-hmm. more automatic that that occurs. Are you are you imagining how the other person's feeling? Are you having this kind of um, physical response mm-hmm. that is shared with them? And so even empathy, I think, is challenging to define. And people have talked yeah. about it different ways in the context of doing psychotherapy, but also in how people interact. And so one thing that um, Keith and I, again, were chatting about this today, and two clinical psychologists are married, or, well, I'm sure you talk a lot about psychology stuff, too. (laughs) Um, It's just, we were talking about how there are different models, like, of of psychopathy and Mm -hmm. lying, and some of them are more, like, very low fear-based, and it's just completely driven by, if you don't have that much fear of stuff you're not going to care that much about what the reactions right. are going to be right. or what the consequences are going to be. And that's going to affect your behavior a lot. But other people have gone more into like cognitive-type judgment aspects. And mm-hmm. so a lot of the, the different empathy measures, I think it's appealing to think of we can have this lie detector and that's going to be yeah. the thing. But what a lot of people find is that there's a lot of um, individual variability in how you respond to things. Sometimes people who have had chronic depression can have this kind of um, reduced startle response that looks similar to people who have psychopathy, but it's totally different reasons and different experiences. And this is one of the things that the students, I think, sometimes get mad at me about is when I talk about lie detector tests not being that good, because I think based on a lot from like Hollywood presentations that they feel like comfortable knowing that you can do a lie detector test and that's going to solve the thing. I'm like, I'm sorry. It's really not like it could be useful in some ways, but it's not that good, which I think is, is hard (laughs) to kind of come to terms with. I think it it taps into our desire to have justice and and have things be clean and neat and and clear cut in the world. But well, it's one of these things too, that I think, um, 
whenever we get a new technology for doing like brain imaging, mm-hmm. there's always this phase where like maybe we can do lie detection now. Yes. Sure. Right. And the answer is always no, we really yeah. can't because it's just a hard problem and all these issues you're raising about variability, mm-hmm. they're just real and they're not easily solved. Yeah, I I mean the best in with in the mental health world, I think, in terms of being able to detect when people lie is actually much less like sophisticated in terms of technology. I think of like the the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, which is completely empirically derived in that they gave this long questionnaire to different groups of people, and they had some people that were faking good or faking bad, depending on what it was. Either they were you know pretending they were uh, sicker than they were or, pret- or pretending that, or you usually see this with like job interviews, they were trying to like minimize their, mm-hmm. their faults. And so they use kind of quantitative techniques to figure out which patterns are most consistent with people who are faking it or lying. And uh-huh. it's pretty... It's pretty good, but it's not as exciting as like hooking people up to stuff or like getting (laughs) their brain. It's like very much like we got this group, this group and this group. And we're going to compare your responses to what the group of people who have schizophrenia or the group of people who are lying have. And then when we compare those patterns, the other thing that's interesting, too, is it's not hypothesis driven. Mm -hmm. It's completely empirically driven. It's looking to just look at patterns and see where they match up. And so it's. It's not as exciting, for example, in like a TV show or a movie. I did see one. I did. I do remember one mention of the MMPI. It was in um, Law and Order: Criminal Intent, and it was a misrepresentation. It was oh. something like his <laughs> his MMPI is off the charts, meaning that he's so healthy. But like, if oh. you're off the charts, that means that's not a good sign. Yeah. So anyway. <laughs> Um, sometimes I think that's part of what's humbling is I've learned more about psychology too, is sometimes the simpler things are, and the less fancy things actually can have better validity <laughs> to them. So. Well, you know, that actually <laughs> comes up in, in the book, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Because they're going to all this trouble mm-hmm. to measure these physiological mm-hmm. things. But then later on in the book, um, so by way of preface, um, animals are rare and mm-hmm. revered in the, the world the book is set in. And there's this bit where one of the androids just starts cutting the legs off a spider. And the human that's in the room is just horrified, right? Because, like, spiders are they're, they're alive, they're not human, you should cherish them. And she's just kind of casually like, how well will it walk with three legs? And it's like, what? Oh, like, the Voight Kampf is all right. about your pupil. <laughs> right. And it's like, right. put an animal in front of them <laughs> yeah. and see if they torture it, right? Exactly. Like, I don't know, that might tell the replicants from the humans, too. Um, and so, yeah, it's one of these cases where there's this really simple thing, if you're paying attention to it, <laughs> that'll do the job for you. But no, no, by all means, go ahead with the wires and the lasers. And... <laughs> That's very true. Um, one movie nerd note mm-hmm. uh, for folks who have seen the way the Voight-Kampf looks in the movie. Um, it's this really sinister-looking machine. So it was modeled on a polygraph, mm-hmm. um, and they have this cool little monitor to show your pupil, and you're hooked up to all these things, and it has this really creepy bellows. There's this kind of accordion-like oh. bellows that kind of like flops back and forth. Um, and that's because one of the designers on the set had heard about this work that humans release pheromones when they're afraid. Okay. And so he was like, well, we're going to put that in the machine. It's going to detect whether you're like exuding fear oh. into the air. Which, right, you're like, oh, that's cool. Yeah. That's evil. But then like, you think about it for a second. And yeah. You're like, that is a terrible idea, <laughs> yes. right? Like, You wouldn't know who is exuding yeah. the fear, right. where it's coming from. If someone just brought a fear air freshener right. in the room, right. like, this is a really bad idea, but it looks so awesome. Yeah, no, it's true. Are they afraid because they're getting tested? 
tested and they're worried about the outcome. Like, it's yeah. just there are so many different. Yeah. yeah. But like you say, it has this appeal. It yeah. does. Like, that is some science on that. We, table, <laughs> that is hard science. We're not, like, worrying about anybody's, like, misperceptions of things. And I think right. that's that's part of it is, you know, I do a lot of self-report research, you know, asking people what they think and having them report on it. And there's always this idea, like, can we really know our own experiences? How well can we report them? And that's when people are even trying. That doesn't even get to when people aren't. And so there is this push, I think, and it's been around for a while, to find, like, the computer task or the thing that is more about their response to this or their reaction time. And and that's important, too, but it's... I, for one, I ran a study looking at... Um, distress tolerance, and I measured it two ways. I was looking at it related to eating disorder symptoms, and I had them do a questionnaire where they just report basically what happens when they have negative emotions, how much can they stand it before they do something that's maladaptive, like binge eating or something like that. And then I had them also do this thing where I induced this mood, and it was based on their own story, and they listened to it, and then they did this task called the um, Pace at the Paced Auditory Serial arithmetic task, which is used for some cognitive things, but it's also been developed in a way to test how long people persist at goals when something is frustrating them. It has loud exploding noises and it gets hard and all this stuff. And the self-report simple questionnaire was a much better predictor of their eating disorder symptoms. And so it's always kind of like, well, that's that's not as cool, (laughs) but good to know. So anyway. I kind of like the idea of remaking now Blade Runner, but instead mm-hmm. of the Void Comp, just giving him a questionnaire. <laughs> it's like, here you Sitting go. there, yeah. looking <laughs> while they fill it in. MMPI. Right. <laughs> go on, keep writing. <laughs> oh, much less flashy, but mm-hmm. fun. So I, I want to talk a little about empathy, too, and the role of empathy in these stories, because it's kind of a central theme in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. Especially in the book, I Ben, you've hinted at this already too. Kind of the role of animals, yeah. and the story starts off uh, with Decker tending to his sheep. That's not a real sheep. Right. Uh, it, it is a. I don't know if an android is the right term, but it's an electric sheep, basically. Right. That's meant to. It looks a lot like a real sheep. It sounds like he's had some problems with it, where he's had to take it to the repair shop a few times. But for all intents and purposes, the, as far as the neighbors can tell, it's a sheep. His neighbor has a horse, which is pretty awesome from the sound of it like a huge deal uh and this horse is going to have another horse presumably and decker would really like to buy one of these horses but the neighbor says no and it's sort of this interesting interaction uh where they really talk about and you get to have some of decker's inner dialogue the importance of having an animal and how much value they put on that especially for appearance purposes it's important to have an animal because other people need to see that i'm caring for something and kind of the bigger and more impressive the animal the more care that it maybe would require the better i think that's such an interesting theme. yeah i don't know i that really caught me right away is just kind of this idea of how important it was to, to have this appearance of empathy almost like i don't know it's in some ways i feel like and and correct me if you think i'm wrong but in the book the humans are moving, it's almost like the theme is the humans are moving more toward being android-like. They've got the Penfield mood organ. That just literally, they crank in what mood they want to feel. They want people to know that they still experience empathy so much that they're willing to have a fake sheep. But in the movie, the theme is almost more on the other side, where the androids or replicants are becoming more human-like. Yeah, It's so interesting how really, by consuming both, you get this really large interesting story kind of like you talked about yeah well in the book it's all very much tied to religiosity yes the idea is there's this dominant religion called mercerism 
um, that involves this kind of weird virtual reality device yeah. where you kind of experience this this trek up a mountain that Wilbur Mercer experiences, and people throw rocks at you, and you're supposed to kind of suffer this experience that he had. Um, spoiler alert for the book, there's this neat reveal that ties into all of this where you find out that there was no real Wilbur Mercer. Sure. Right? There's this legend that he was this child who could bring dead animals back to life and all this kind of stuff. And it turns out they filmed these movies people are watching in VR with this kind of out-of-work drunk actor. Oh, you know, they, they brought in an old guy, put him in robes, and made him do all this stuff on a soundstage. Um, but there's this real weird pivotal moment in the book where Deckard is sort of talking to Mercer and he says, like, hey, I heard this was all fake. And Mercer says, yeah, sure, it is, but that doesn't matter. <laughs> right. Right. And it's, it's kind of this interesting, mm-hmm. it's where Dick likes to leave a lot of stuff. Yeah. Right. Is that, like, it's ambiguous and confusing and that's kind of okay. You just have to live yeah. it. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think you're right that it, it is both about the people becoming kind of less human and the androids becoming more human, and everybody having to kind of recognize, yeah. all right, that's where we are, you know, and we don't need to discount one or the other. We just need to work out that we all inhabit this kind of odd space on the threshold that we don't understand. Yeah, which is that embracing of the ambiguity is not the easiest for people. No. I think right. <laughs> no, it's just it's tough. But I but that's probably why it's so cool to read about it and things that are. There are parallels, but it's not the yeah. thing you're living in that makes it a little bit easier. Oh, know. just take the words, is Deckard a replicant, into yeah. and you will watch the internet struggle with sure. ambiguity. <laughs> right. Yeah, so I, I haven't gotten quite to the end of the, the book yet, so Ben, maybe you can help me out. Mm-hmm. At the end, Deckard, he thinks that he is Mercer for a little bit, right? right. Yeah, and then he, because he drives off, he thinks he is Mercer, he finds a frog, which yes. is a big deal because there aren't many animals because of the war. Right. Turns out it wasn't actually a real but then frog. It's a wind up frog. It's, it's a frog. Yeah. And then at the end, he just sort of goes, All right, who okay. cares? And goes to bed. <laughs> yep. That's so interesting. Because compared to the film ending where he leaves uh, with a replicant, and it's amazing to me the difference between those endings. But yeah. I love the book ending. I love that he's just resigned to it. It's just, right. well, this is it. And he goes to bed. I love that. Well, you know, in, in the movie, um, there's this character, Gaff, who is this other bounty hunter that works mm-hmm. in the same department as Deckard does. Um, and he barely says anything in the whole movie. Uh, but he says this thing at the end um, because he knows that Deckard is going to run off with Rachel. Mm-hmm. And he just shouts after him, right? It's a shame, it's a shame she yeah. won't live. Uh, but who does? But then yeah. again, who does? Right? And like that's really, I think that's what you're supposed to believe Deckard is kind of going to bed with in his head yeah, in the sure. book, right? That like, look, all this, everyone's life is too short. All right, you're going to spend a lot of your life wrestling with uncertainty and ambiguity. That's just the fact of it. Yeah. And at some point, it's like, why why fight for certainty when you're not going to arrive? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of comforting, isn't it? And kind of a, a little bit. Like, I think it depends. Some yeah, people find suppose. it deeply yeah. troubling, right? Yeah, that's other true. people are like, no, okay, it's all right. Just yeah. go to bed. Like, you yeah, can't change it. Just go to bed. And psychologists okay. have struggled with this, too, right? To try to find the individual differences of basically people who can tolerate ambiguity and uncertainty versus yeah. people who really need order and stuff like yeah. that. And that's not my area at all, but I think the idea is interesting. And yeah. it certainly maps on to, I guess, just... Um, but I've experienced anecdotally, you see people who are need more certainty about what's yeah. the right way and what's the wrong way. And other people are like, you know, it, this is a reality and it's more of a functional, what do we do with it kind of thing. So, mm-hmm. yeah. 
Well, I think in in the realm of mm-hmm. thinking about empathy and mm-hmm. the way people exhibit empathetic responses, you know, people behave in really strange ways mm-hmm. more than we realize. Um, that make all these issues of how you test for empathy really complex. Yeah. Uh, I went to a conference, this is several years ago now, that was a developmental robotics conference. Um, and I told Aaron, uh, my wife, that it was basically a robot friends conference. Sure. Like, there were a lot of people who brought out like their little robot friend and they were just like, <laughs> that's awesome. this little guy out. Well, and that's the thing. Your first reaction when you see these is you fall in love with them. Yeah. Right? It's like a little toaster-sized robot with eyes. Yeah. And immediately you're like, hey, buddy, you know, yeah. you're going to be my robot friend. Um, but it turns out that as sort of, you know, as willing as we are to feel empathy for these, you know, really crude-looking robots, yeah. right? At the same time, they were, some of the speakers were saying people behave in these really odd ways with them, too. Um, so I'm trying to remember this one study. I think they used Furbies. People okay. remember Furbies. Oh, yeah. um, and they had programmed them to express distress when they were, like, held upside down. Oh, interesting. And it turns out people, when you give them a Furby, they're like, hey, it's cute. I'm petting it. But once they find out that it complains about this stuff it doesn't like, they start doing it. Right? Oh, and, and people will totally start, like, sort of tormenting the Furby. <laughs> To kind of see, like, well, how much is it going to yell? What's it going to do? Sure. And I think someone like Philip K. Dick would be like, yeah, right? right? <laughs> you yeah. Know? Sure. And, like, you thought cutting off the legs of the spider was bad. Yeah. You know, you do this stuff, too. That's, I wonder if there's a line where how realistic the robot needs to get before that gets uncomfortable. Because with the yeah. Furby, we can't really connect or maybe empathize so much, even though maybe we should. Right. But... If you, like, how realistic or human-like would it have to get before you stop holding it upside down and making it distressed? That's an interesting question. You know, and I, I bet it matters what what aspects of it are real, too. Right. You know, does, is a real voice with a yeah. Furby enough? Is a real-looking robot that right. has a clunky robotic yeah. voice? You know, there's all these different ways to try and assess how real something is, and they all might work differently and probably interfere with each other in complicated ways. Yeah. This is making me think of Westworld a little bit, too, because mm-hmm. those are perfectly lifelike uh, yeah. in that. And they still are showing no... The humans who go in, you know, will show no sympathy for the... I forget what they call them, um, the, the robots in there. Yeah, but yeah. they have some name for them. But they'll they'll just be shooting them or hurting them, and that's kind of part of the appeal for some people to go to the Westworld theme park. So that's, right. that's an interesting question. Mm-hmm. The, yeah. You know, one thing that I've noticed just anecdotally, too, is that it seems like... There are certain things like there's that horrible story in the news about the puppy that died on the plane. Oh, Did you yeah, hear about this? this? And and um, it's it, sure it's not a good story. Sure. But anyway, a lot of people were just like really outraged and upset about which is understandable about this puppy because basically, um, and I've noticed this with other animal stories too, whether it's um, people hunting certain lions, like mm-hmm. depending on that, and people have these really strong responses, and it's interesting because. It's not always the same people who, like, if they hear about horrible conditions in another country or something mm-hmm. like that, and there are um, children or there are adults being affected, like, I don't know if it's just harder to imagine because they're not in the same place and it's harder to, or if it's too difficult to think about, but I'm always struck by people who have super strong reactions to, to animals and then some of the people type stuff don't have a strong yeah. reaction i don't know what that is there's um a comic artist and sort of comic theorist named scott mcleod um who has this really neat idea about this in his books understanding comics and making comics um he has this argument that when you're talking about comic art simpler is sort of better mm-hmm. in terms of people feeling attached to it and engaged to it um 
and his argument is that's why comics that were really sort of cartoony are so successful. Sure. Like Peanuts is mm-hmm. just kind of, it's an accessible comic mm-hmm. visually. Yeah. Um, and when you show people something that's more realistic, you know, like a Prince Valiant style mm-hmm. comic, it's just like more work or yeah. something. Yeah. You can just like perceive it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's something about this simpler version of it that makes it really easy to just kind of relate to it mm-hmm. and engage with it emotionally. And I don't know, maybe that's related to how people respond to these stories about animals Versus people. Yeah. You know, it just feels like some easier step to think about or something. Yeah, and maybe even an easier to solve. Like in the case of with with the plane or when people don't like certain animals being hunted, it's like, well, we can prevent that. But if you're mm-hmm. thinking about a war-torn right. country where a lot of things are going on, I don't know, maybe, and I, I don't know, I'm just speculating, but something I've been thinking about, just what different things pull strong emotions from people and there's probably some individual differences too but mm-hmm. I wonder about some of those themes about if I get outraged about this I might actually be able to impact it like if I call the airline where this happened or I boycott it or whatever maybe we can prevent that from happening again versus these large scale things or right. you know or I have a dog and I am thinking of my dog being hurt versus I'm you know I, it's hard for me to imagine those conditions or whatever so yeah. I wonder too if people's feelings about the lack of agency on the part of the animal yeah. matter. Yeah. You feel like, you know, the animal couldn't help itself. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas even when you're thinking about these horrible conditions mm-hmm. in other parts of the world, you might be thinking, well, those are other humans. Yeah. You know, maybe yeah. there's something people around them can be doing or that they can be doing, mm-hmm. which it's not always obvious that that's true. Right. But maybe it's an easier fiction for you to maintain yeah. so you feel better about it. No, I, I think you're right. I think about, um, well, even the difference between children and adults and mm-hmm. how it, um, how much sympathy that pulls. I think it's it's thinking of a child as kind of relatively more helpless or having less agency. It's harder for people to come up with reasons why they either could get out of it themselves or what they could have contributed to getting into that situation. So, mm-hmm. Ben, I have another question for you. Yeah, sure. As we get towards the end. In, so, in the end of the book, Decker goes to bed. In the end of the film, uh, Decker finds a small origami unicorn, which yep. he previously dreamt of or had a vision of. Yeah, some kind of yes. yeah, he vision saw. Yes. He saw. How do we explain that, and is Decker a replicant in your opinion? <laughs> You're going to make me be unambiguous. <laughs> I'm going to bed. <laughs> <laughs> No, so so one interpretation of it, right, is we see Gaff, this other bounty hunter, mm-hmm. making all these little animals. Yes. And it's clearly been placed there for Decker to find. And so one interpretation is that Gaff has made that unicorn to basically tell Deckard that dream you had was implanted. Mm-hmm. And I know that because you're a replicant, and maybe I was even involved mm-hmm. in implanting sure. it. And so it's meant to be this kind of subtle signal that he's not what he thinks he is. Um, so that, coupled with the arguments people make about the eye flashing mm-hmm. in the movies, mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys have seen this, but there's mm-hmm. um, replicants in the movie, you see their eyes kind of flash oh. frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, and people have done these you know, remarkable things that the internet cultivates of like freeze-framing yeah. every part of Harrison Ford's scenes to see if his eyes flash. Um, and so I think on balance, the story is probably that Deckard is a replicant. Sure. And I think Ridley Scott even said this maybe a couple years ago in an interview that he was kind of working under the hypothesis that Deckard is. Um, for my part, I got to take the, the Philip K. Dick answer and say sure. it doesn't matter. Okay. <laughs> right? Um, I really, and again, maybe that's unsatisfying to people who are like, is he going to live four more years or yeah. not? Um, I think we're really supposed to believe that it doesn't actually matter. Yeah. Right? Th- this is a being who has thoughts yeah. and feelings and wishes for himself and others, and that, like, that is the important thing. Yeah. 
I like that conclusion too. It's comfortable to sit there. <laughs> At least you're comfortable. Yeah. yeah, you can tolerate that kind of thing. Um, did we miss anything that you wanted to talk about? I think I'm pretty good. Okay. I mean, we could always come back and do another Uncanny Valley discussion. Yeah. if you guys want to talk about that. Yeah, I I was wondering if we can fit that in, or if it's a if you think it's a topic worthy of its own. Sort of. I mean, it uh, might get its. Down. It might get its own. Yeah. Honestly, in, in Blade, I was thinking that it's too. a little funny to fit into Blade Runner because they actually look perfectly human. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't really that's experience. True. it. So you don't really experience. Mm-hmm. It. Right. Yeah. That's so a good that's point. kind of part of the part of the problem why they need mm-hmm. these tests is because yeah. they look too realistic. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot of cool stuff we could say about that too. Yeah. Let's okay. save that then. Let's, okay. let's shelf that one for now then. Um, well, we usually have a couple of closing questions, but maybe we'll save those two, actually. We usually have a couple of nerdy, rapid-fire finishing questions. <laughs> but since we're going to have you on again, maybe we'll save them until the very end. Sure. Um, and, and we'll plan to come back and maybe talk a little bit more about Vision, a little bit more about Uncanny Valley, and maybe a little Westworld. I, I can't remember. Yeah, that should be pretty good, I think. That's like probably more than in one episode. <laughs> but. Welcome to our new co-host. Yeah, yeah, going <laughs> to do a series here. Um, one thing that I, I just wanted to mention that didn't quite fit in with everything else, and I, and I told you two about I mean, I think that the, the story is beautifully written and mm-hmm. a pleasure to read. And one of the things that, that stood out to me in reading it is kind of early on this quote, which I'll read. But a mood like that, Rick said, you're apt to stay in it, not dial your way out. Despair like that about total reality is self-perpetuating. And so the idea is that if you set your dial to be in this despair or upset state, that if you don't automatically set for it to end, then you're going to stay there. And that really fits with a lot of the research that we now have on depression, the idea that uh, there are specific types of Part of what makes depression so cruel and difficult is that the the very things that one needs to do to get out of it, like maybe be active or engage with people or problem solve, are the hardest things to do in that state. And instead, it kind of gets in this place where it's like if you if you're feeling depressed, often I mean people experience it differently. You feel like you don't want to hang out with people because it's not going to be fun anyway. You don't want to get up and be active. You want to lie in bed or um, you want to avoid things. And all of those things make it so much worse. But you're, it's like you're in this place where it's hard to break out of that. It's, it feels almost like there's a force propelling you towards what will make you feel more depressed. And there's been interesting research on stress generation where they do longitudinal studies and they look at people who are experiencing depression, and then they follow up later and find that actually having depression generates more stressful life events. It's not totally clear why. Some of the thought is because of not reaching out to social support as much or avoiding things like your car's broken down, but you don't feel like you have the energy to take care of it, and so that becomes a greater problem. And so, anyway, just some of the discussions around that, they aren't the main part of it, but I I feel like they're just kind of a pleasure to read because they capture these relatable aspects yeah. i guess yeah i think the, the the penfield mood organ is uh a really cool sort of idea yeah of, and like even when the, that discussion of like when uh, his wife has like time scheduled up to feel bad yeah. yeah like that's that was interesting it is and it's i mean in in therapy these are some of the strategies that are used i mean i think about if people have anxiety issues sometimes you'll schedule out what's called worried time mm-hmm. which is that the idea is that if you have a concentrated effort of time 
that it's not going to be just chronic throughout the day because when it comes up, you can think, no, I've got worry time later. The other idea, too, is that if you experience it rather than trying to avoid it where you're going in and out, it can be more of um, you can tolerate negative emotions, right? It's not it's this idea that you're not trying to avoid feeling all pain or things like that. It's just that you you feel it and you keep moving in a way that you value. And then, and then another thing, it's kind of like trying to, therapy's trying to change the dial back too by saying like, even if you don't feel like it, go do this thing. And I think that sometimes in terms of human behavior, a lot of us think like, if I change my attitude or think about it this way, then my motivation will come. But a lot of what we found from depression research is actually you do the act and then the motivation follows and it's really counterintuitive. So just hearing them talk about managing emotions and things like that I thought was really interesting. And nice geeky shout out to Dr. Valder Penfield, neuroscientist of renown, um, who used electrical stimulation to map out a lot of what the motor cortex and somatosensory oh, wow. cortex do. So yeah, the Penfield mood organ is, is named very appropriately, because I think the idea is it stimulates these different parts of your emotional brain to give you these emotional states. Sure. How cool. I didn't know that. I like that. That's a fun, geeky fact. <laughs> That's a perfect thing to end on, I <laughs> yes. think. Uh, so Ben, thank you so much for being on. Oh, thank you both for having me. Yeah, love to have it. One, we'll be excited to have you back to talk a little bit more. If anyone has any questions about anything that we talked about today or any of the upcoming topics for the division or the Uncanny Valley, uh, let us know and, and we'll answer those on our next episode. But for the time being, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll cut it off here. Thank you for listening to the Jedi Council Podcast, a member of the Geek Therapy Podcast Network. You can find more information about our podcast or blog at www.jedi-council.com. If you would like to support the Jedi Council Podcast, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Jedi Council. The views expressed on this podcast are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Additionally, this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you're struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help.